I'm Shanna Merton, host of the Tech Tools for Teachers podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Barbara R. Blackburn. That's right. She's back. And we're focused on her book, Rigor in Your Classroom, a Toolkit for Teachers, second edition. She has 250 plus tools to help you work with kids in your classrooms. Awesome talk. Practical tools for you to use now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. And oh, by the way, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and left a review. Could you do that for me? Say some nice words and maybe five stars. What do you think? Hmm? <laughs> That'd be so cool. You are awesome. Enjoy the show. It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show. With lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Miletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ranked in the top 10 global gurus in education, Barbara has dedicated her life to raising the level of rigor and motivation for professional educators and students alike. What differentiates Barbara's over 30 books are her easily executable concrete examples based on decades of experience as a teacher, professor, and consultant. Barbara's dedication to education was inspired in her early years by her parents, Bob and Rose. Her father's doctorate and lifetime career as a professor taught her the importance of professional training. Her mother's career as a school secretary shaped Barbara's appreciation of the effort all staff play in the education of every child. Barbara has taught early childhood, elementary, middle, and high school students and has served as an educational consultant for three publishing companies. She holds a master's degree in school administration and was certified as both a teacher and a school principal in North Carolina. She received her Ph.D. in curriculum and teaching from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. In 2006, she received the award for Outstanding Junior Professor at Winthrop University. She left her position at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte to write and speak full-time. In addition to speaking at state, national, and international conferences, she also regularly presents virtual and on-site workshops for teachers and administrators in elementary, middle, and high schools. Her workshops are lively and engaging and filled with practical information. Her most popular topics include rigor is not a four-letter word, rigorous schools and classrooms leading the way, rigorous assessments, rigor and differentiation in the classroom, rigor for students with special needs, motivation plus engagement plus rigor equals student success, research-based Engaging instruction leads to higher achievement, high expectations, and increased support lead to success, and so many more. Our focus today is her book, Rigor in Your Classroom, a Toolkit for Teachers, Second Edition. Barbara, welcome back. Thanks for being here, and say hi to everyone. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here, Steve. I, I uh, quit counting how many of these we do, but it's always fun to do them, and uh, I think the most fun is listening to you introduce me because I sound tremendously fancy in your introductions. Thanks so much. Well, you are. You are. And uh, we have done a lot of these. And welcome back and uh, appreciate you uh, talking with me again. And we, you have such cool books. And, uh, and you know, the whole topic of rigor is such a you know, topic that uh, sometimes it makes people make faces because they don't really know what it, what it means. And it's like, and they have some strange thoughts about it. And, uh, you know, let's go ahead and get into this, um, your rigor in your classroom, a toolkit for teachers, second edition. Um, why'd you call it a toolkit? Um, because I really do believe that's sort of what it is. It's a kit of strategies. So lots of people who buy this 
have previously bought Rigor's Not a Four-Letter Word, which I know is your favorite topic. I know that's your favorite title. Yes, it is. Um, I love it. (laughs) Maybe they've bought that or they've bought Rigor for students with special needs, and they just want more strategies. And so I wanted to give them a kit of additional strategies. And so that's what this, this sort of goes with. And it's really all around the idea that Rigor is not this horrible thing. Rigor is just having high expectations and providing students the support so they can learn and then letting them show you what they know in rigorous ways. And that's really what it's about. And this just gives you lots and lots of strategies that you can pull from to use with your students. Awesome. And, you know, this is uh, uh, this is the second edition. So you got a couple comments about what's what's new there. Um, what, the book was so popular, people were like, what are you going to add to it? So there's a really big new section on academic discourse. Uh, what is discourse compared to conversation? Uh, some academic vocabulary piece. Probably my favorite piece that is in here uh, are the uh, wide variety of examples of what a rigorous task looks like. Because I get that question more than I get anything else is, can you look at this? Can you tell me if it's rigorous? And that's actually, you were talking about me me doing uh, workshops with schools. Uh, these days, the majority of my time is partnering with schools and districts where we look at what is a rigorous task? Uh, what are the characteristics of a rigorous task? How can you take what you've already got and not throw it away, but just make it more rigorous? Because usually you can just bump it up. So I think that's the biggest piece that's in there. And that's really the direction uh, that I've gone in uh, in terms of working with schools and districts. Very cool. Love it. Uh, you know, in, in the beginning of your book, you actually list 10 myths about rigor. Um, let's talk about two of them. And uh, let's start with number one. Number one, I love it. Uh, lots of homework is a sign of rigor. And myth number two, rigor means doing more. Can you talk about those two yeah. for a second? They, they are very interrelated. Um, somehow, we got the idea that if you wanted to up the rigor, you would double the amount of problems that a student would do. Uh, or instead of giving them one essay to write at night, they would write three essays, those kinds of things. This whole notion of more, whether it's homework or classwork, uh, but but the idea that quantity is what rigor is about. And, and I will tell you, I talk to a lot of parents, they like that because they can get their head around that. They're like, I know it's a rigorous classroom if, if my um, son has to work for more than an hour at night. So, you know, they get their head around that. The problem is, if I don't understand something and I just practice it more, I just don't understand it more. And it takes longer to unlearn it uh, than it does to do it right the first time. So I'm all about quality, not quantity. And so you may only go home with one question, but if it's a really good question, that's going to take some time and it's going to take a lot of thought. So we do sort of find ourselves falling into these traps that are easy because it's easy for me to to double the number of problems. That's easy for me to do, but that's not what rigor's about at all. I think that's so important to, to have those conversations because so often, I mean, I've had to have those discussions with my own staff. I've had to have those discussions with uh, um, teachers of my own children. And uh, you know, when you, when you talk with someone who thinks that everything's about more, as opposed to the in, you know the depth of it or what it what types of thinking it's taking the the child down you know it's uh <laughs> it 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 gets kind of frustrating when it's you know it's like you know this is a tough class instead of uh, twenty five problems you're going to do three hundred fifty and right you know, 
Right. And again, if I don't understand it and I do it that way, I'm going to do it wrong 350 times. I've really learned a bad pattern in my head. And for the teacher to have to unteach a bad pattern, it's far more difficult than doing it right to start with. Yeah, not gonna. It's not gonna be good because that's. Uh, I would be that kid on that that row going. Well, I keep doing. Yeah, you know, I was getting them done. <laughs> yeah, but it, they're not correct, man. <laughs> nice, <laughs> good. Uh, all right, so let's start. Let's dive into your book and uh, let's let's talk about uh, chapter two because where I want to go here is it's titled "Raising Expectations Through Questioning and Adult Behaviors," and it has a section called. And th- by the way, I have to say this because this is seriously a toolkit because it has all these tools, all these helpful, useful things. I mean, it's it. Here's here's an introduction to what I'm talking about, and now here are the things that you can use to do it. And uh, I love that. I mean, so this is this is literally like that big giant red thing with the with the drawers in it in the, in someone's garage where they pull out the special um, wrench or whatever to help the to help the mechanic, you know, or the home mechanic deal with the the vehicle they have in their garage. They uh, in this case, yeah, it's the teacher. I was with the looking, red. yeah, I was flipping over in my book. There's 284 tools. Nice. I like that. So <laughs> that's the other thing we expanded it a lot. So, uh, but but you're right. It is very much a toolkit. Some of your listeners have heard me say this before, but I do when I get the book. Uh, when it comes to me, I do what's called a flip test, and I just flip it like this. And if I don't see a chart, a graph, a heading, or a diagram on every page, then I haven't done my job. So oh. I really. <laughs> You've definitely did a job with this one because that's uh, <laughs> there's they're on every page. So. It's yes. cool stuff. So it, this one, I'm talking about specifically Tool 13. Uh, you know, the funny thing is today's Friday. So does that have anything to do with like Tool 13 Ooh. on Friday? <laughs> never mind, never mind. Forget I said that. All right. Uh, the, so this one's Tool 13, and uh, it's it, it's nine characteristics of effective questioning. Could you share why questions are important and maybe share two of nine characteristics, like encourage other questions and turn attention to deeper issues? Uh, why are those important? Sure. Uh, I mean, questioning is at the heart of what we do in the classroom. I mean, as a teacher, if you think about the amount of time you spend asking questions and answering questions, you know, it's it's a tremendous amount of, of your instructional time. And uh, it's it's because it happens so much of the time and because it's such a strong instructional tool, then we want to make sure we get it right. So, for example, one of the... Um, one of the biggest challenges I see with questioning, and I talk to principals about this a lot, because they'll go in to observe a teacher, and they've got on their checklist, teacher ask higher order questions. And every teacher out there is nodding, going, oh, yeah, that's always on the list. Okay, so principals will go in, and they'll check it off, that the teacher asked a really good higher order question. But then that's all they pay attention to. And if, as a teacher, I ask a higher order question, but I accept a lower level answer, that's not rigorous. So if I, t- if I accept a yes or no answer and I don't say, why do you think that? What's the evidence for that? How do you know that? Then I'm not really doing my job in terms of rigor. And so that's really important <laughs> about questioning. And so when you look at all the characteristics, they really do uh, sort of support that that concept because you want to encourage other questions. I mean, if I ask you a question and you answer it, the ideal piece is somebody else jumps in and either expands on it or asks another question with that. So we're going deeper. That's the whole piece about turning attention to deeper questions. It does ignite other questions. So you really um, develop 
I was trying to think, okay, I'm going to use an example that is going to date myself tremendously. Nice, nice. <laughs> um, but I read this the other day and I thought it was really good. It talked about that good questioning is not like a ping pong game. It's not just back and forth teacher and student. It's like a pinball machine where the, it bounces all over the place. Like and I thought that was such a good analogy uh, of what you want questioning to be like in your classroom. That's so cool. Cause that's, you know, the ping pong simple, the, the, the pinball, not so simple, especially if you're trying to keep it from going down the side hole or over in the, that, that, you know, the, the one that's back over here in the corner that you didn't realize was there. And, oh yeah, right. cool. I like that. That's an awesome analogy. They, um, good stuff. I mean, cause that's, you know, part of questioning in the classroom is so, um, it needs to be encouraged. I mean, I, it, I granted that's going to take you <laughs> sometimes it's going to, that means that class period two might, uh, be a little different if you're a high school teacher than class period three because you went down this other route because of the questions that came out. But uh, right. maybe right. makes you bring and, it up. And, and that doesn't mean you don't have a framework to work from because right. you, you know what needs to happen. But if students are on task and taking it to a different level, I absolutely want to go there. Now, if they want to talk about last night's movie, no, we've got to be careful with that. But there are times where students will really get into good in-depth conversations, but I will say this, you have to teach them how to do it. They don't know how to do it to start with. I don't care what age they are. They don't have a lot of experience with it. So you really got to teach it. You've got to use some questioning prompts. There's all kinds of things you can do for strategies. That's so awesome. I, I can remember being in a school as a classroom teacher, teaching world history, and we were learning how to use the Socratic method within the classroom. And you definitely have to teach them because otherwise you're going to be sitting there by yourself. You know, they're all in there, but you know, okay, let me, let me jumpstart this, this question here. Here we go. And that's so, so powerful what you're talking about there. I, I let, all right. So let's, uh, let's talk about something else for a second. You know, in here, you talk about the words won't and can't. Can you talk about those two for a second? <laughs> oh yeah. Won't and can't. Um, my students, particularly when I taught struggling students, were terrible to say can't. I mean, before I even got a word out, they would say, I can't do that. I could be asking them what their name was, and they would tell me, I can't answer that question. And so I got really, really frustrated. And one day I just came out and said, this is not about you can't. This is about you won't. And uh, I really fleshed that out as a teacher. And then since then, as a university professor and, and as an author and somebody who works with teachers, this idea that you may have some students who can't. All right. That's an issue of I need more help. So it's not that I can't. It's I need more help. Okay? And I will help you. But most of the time you're saying I won't. And that is an issue. Of you have to step up and do it. And I was sharing this with a group of teachers in Chicago. And one of the teachers said, oh, I had that problem with my students always saying can't. And she did the coolest thing. She brought in empty cans and had the kids write down all the things they thought they couldn't do. So it was, I can't read a chapter book. I can't multiply three numbers, whatever. So she had them list out everything and stuff them in the can. And she'd gotten permission from the principal to do this. She went out into the back corner of uh, the schoolyard and they buried all the cans and they said, okay, they're gone. You know, they're in the graveyard now, they're dead, they're buried. What we're going to focus on is what we can do. And so I do think this notion of I, uh, the wording of can't and won't 
Um, I really believe if I was back in the classroom today, I would ban the word can't because that's not, that's not what's happening. I need more help is a valid response, but I can't is not because you're just giving up before you get started. Oh, that's, it's so important. And, it, you know, and I think students use that a lot as a way to fend against the teacher to say, if I say this, will they just go away? You know, and, and if you do, then that's not good because that's, uh, that, that, that's, uh, that it works. So therefore try it again, you know, that type of thing. And I get used to saying it, uh, good stuff. I, chapter three is titled raising expectations through complex tasks. Uh, what's a complex task and how does this raise the quality of rigor? Okay, this is so my favorite part of rigor these days because it is this idea of what makes a rigorous task. And uh, this section in the book is all new. And so it's things like, let's start with math because a lot of times math teachers struggle with how am I supposed to make something more complex? So let me give you an example. I was in a classroom um, a couple of years ago and the students were doing rote multiplication uh, which is fine. It's important. Got to do that to get to the next thing. But then to make it more rigorous, the teacher was doing word problems. Well, the problem was that it was still rote. It wasn't anything really different. It just had words that dressed it up. And so she said, well, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to let my students write word problems. Well, they still wrote problems that were rote multiplication. It wasn't anything rigorous at all. And so the teacher talked to me and said, what would you do instead? What would you recommend? I said, here's what I would recommend. On your next practice sheet or test or whatever you're going to do, give them eight questions, however you want to do it. Um, you know, just rote ones or word problems, whatever you want to do. I said, but I want you to save the last problem. And for the last problem, you want to say, here are three multiplication problems. They are already solved. Determine which one is incorrect, explain why it is incorrect, solve it correctly, and explain why you know it is right now. Now, that is an entirely different level of thinking. Very much so. And I, I mean, it's just, isn't that amazing? Yes. I, I love it. You know, it's like uh, um, one of the things that used to always you know, usually frustrate students is when the teacher uh, um doesn't just give do problems five, four, six, and seven or something like this. And, uh, and they're just work the problem out and get an answer. Instead, they're, you know, like word problems that have multiple, um, sections to them or something like this. And, you know, kid goes, dang gummit, why can't I, I have to, you know, and it's, it's so different. It's, I was talking one time to, uh, you know, when you go into big cities and you see how you have to park someplace and there's these little parking lots that have grown up all over the place one of the things that amazes me is how they, you know, if someone's ever tried to figure out if I stripe it this way, I'm going to make more money because this is how much space is there. And it's interesting when you throw that together as a math problem to say, um, how could you, you know, how could you, you know, take this strange space that's not, it's not rectangular. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a lot different than a rectangle. And how can you make more money out of this space? And, you know, I think, you know, complex problems are really, I mean, that's, it's kind of, it's our world as opposed to, you know, the perfect, <laughs> okay, you have a four by four box and uh, whatever. So anyway. Yeah. But I mean, it's just so much more powerful. So let's do, let's do a language arts example. Okay. And this one can be used either upper elementary, middle school. You could probably even use it with high school if you wanted to, but if they've been studying different fairy tales. So the question is, 
What is the theme of Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Make sure to use details from the text to support this choice. Now, that's where most people stop, and that's not very rigorous, so let's keep going. Goldilocks and the Three Bears was written nearly 200 years ago. Justify whether this theme applies to today. Provide an example from modern life to validate your answer. Ooh, nice. <laughs> Just that switch, okay? Didn't get rid of the question, added to it. Nice, I like that. That's... That's awesome. And and now you've made a lot of math teachers happy because we stopped picking on them. <laughs> no, no, no. And I'm not picking on math teachers. Math teachers, what I just walked you through, you've been doing that for years. That is error analysis. What I'm doing is just really fleshing it out a little bit so that you get to that depth of what you want, uh, as opposed to them just saying, well, I follow the steps. They've got to really use academic vocabulary to explain what they're doing. So, um, you know, I, I find that most math teachers I work with are okay with that. They like that. They're like, okay, you're not telling me to throw out what I'm doing. You're not telling me not to do any problems. You're not telling me to make up something brand new. No, I'm not doing any of that. I'm telling you, you can take what you're doing and bump it up. And then if you want to mix in some new things, we can do that too. I love it. love it. That's so, so awesome. And uh, it, it's really going to get, uh, talk about being able to go down the land of questions also once you, um, start uh, talking like this or working problems like this, you're going to have uh, um, questions that uh, are going to arise from the students that are going to help take you in, uh, you know, in a, in a good path that uh, um, as they're expanding their thoughts about uh, the questions and such, especially talking about Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I like that. Uh, <laughs> and you can do that with anything, you know, take any classic. But the notion that you don't just look at evidence from the text. You also go beyond the text to real life, to another subject, to another topic within our subject. That becomes key there. Awesome. Uh, awesome. So so let's, uh, something that you mentioned in your chapter that deals with this, increasing depth of instruction, is Tool 55, Sample Classroom Norms. In this section, you note that students need to learn to agree and disagree respectively. Let's talk about this a little bit because I love this. Yeah, um, because this is in this whole new section with with uh, classroom discourse and with questioning and teaching them to ask questions. And you do need to have some norms, just like you have discipline rules for the year. I mean, we would never think of starting the year without discipline rules. And we do know that it's better if we can get students to buy into them and we work on them together. So we know that. Well, you need to have the same thing when it comes to other things in your classroom. So, for example, um, in for classroom discourse, we're all a team, so we work together rather than competing. That's a big deal to some kids. They never thought about that it wasn't a competition. If you don't agree with someone, find a positive way to respond without embarrassing the other person. Everyone should be able to participate. If one person is talking too much, the other group members should just give them a signal and move on. And so it's those kinds of norms that you come up with. And uh, interestingly, I, I will tell you this, uh, I don't know, do not know that I wrote about this in this book, but uh, having norms and really teaching students what they should be doing while they are, while they are using discourse is strategic prior knowledge. Right? We think about prior knowledge being content prior knowledge. What do you know about volcanoes? Well, there's also strategic prior knowledge. What do you know about the strategies? What do you know about taking notes? What do you know about having a conversation in a small group? And so having the norms really helps build that strategic 
prior knowledge because a lot of students don't have that. They've they've never practiced it. They've never known to practice it. It's not that they necessarily don't want to do it. They don't know they're supposed to. And so somewhere along the line, and, and a professor that I taught with taught me this difference between content and strategic prior knowledge, and it is such a key piece. Uh, in fact, I'm going to stop right now. Nope, you can keep going, but I'm going to write myself a note because the new book I'm working on is on scaffolding and support, and I need to make sure I put a big section in there on strategic and content prior knowledge because that is so important for struggling learners. That's awesome. I, you, you know, one of the, one of the things that's what I was getting ready to ask you a little bit about was uh, to talk briefly about scaffolding and support. And um, you know, b- before we leave the concept of talking, <laughs> understanding that there are, you know, just like a norm, like I mean well. All right. So mm-hmm. if it doesn't come out exactly how I meant it to, uh, please recognize that I mean well. I, I mean, are there a couple other norms that you could mention there that uh, that might come into a conversation? Well, I think the piece about the really the key ones are letting other people talk and and being positive when you don't agree with somebody. I actually would would stress those two more than just going to some different ones. There's some other good ones, but those two are really critical. And again, like if I'm back in the classroom today, what I'm going to do is we're going to have some sample things to say when you don't agree with somebody. Okay, we're going to come up with them. We're going to post them, and that's what so. Well, I'm not sure I agree with that. Can you explain that more? You know, I, I'm going to give them some prompts because what happens is they don't know how to do that. You know, it, whether they are third graders or 12th graders, they don't know how to do that. They just know, I don't like what you said. And so I'm going to teach them how to do that. This notion that they need to sort of share share the wealth and let everybody talk. You've always got a student who doesn't want to talk and they're really shy and they're really quiet and you want to make sure they have the opportunity to talk. And in an ideal world, you can get the students to do what's in the norms, which is for somebody who's talking too much, just give them a signal and then move on and let somebody else talk. But I have had times where I've used chips where every student gets three chips. And when you talk, you use up a chip. And so, you know, you can do something like that. But it's, it's more the idea of are you working together as opposed to are you working apart? And that is a very different thing. That is so important. I mean, I just, this, this whole section here just made me think of, by the way, I, I wish I had this section when I was a high school principal because there were some meetings that we were in with adults that we could have had, you know, some a little bit of training, especially prompts to say if you don't agree with somebody or something like that. But uh, you know, it's it's so important that the, that there be time spent on helping them understand how to have discussions where you don't necessarily agree with what the other side's saying, but you need to have a a discussion about it. I love this. Uh, all right, so you brought up just a second ago a a, a powerful powerful tool and that's scaffolding as well as support. Uh, so let's go into some details with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've written about that probably in every book I've written and I still have teachers email me and say, can you tell me more? So it really is the next book I've, I've just started on and just beginning to finish the research so that I can get into the writing. Um, so in about six months, we'll do an interview with it, but scaffolding support is important for for any student, but it's particularly important if you want a rigorous classroom. 
because the higher the level of rigor, the higher the need for support. And the example I would use with you is think about your first year in education, whether you were a teacher or a leader, think about that first year. Did you ever need support? All right. So you were in a rigorous situation and you needed support. So why am I going to beat you up over that? You know, sometimes I think we punish students for needing extra help. I don't think we do it on purpose, but they view it that way. And so what we've really got to do is say, what I understand is I'm giving you something challenging to do. You need to understand, I believe you can do it. And my job is to help you get there. It's not to do it for you, but my job is to help you get there. And that's the heart of scaffolding and support is figuring out what you need and then moving forward with it. So you may need me to pair you up with someone who can talk you through it using different words than I used because you need to hear it differently. You may need some coaching from me. You may simply need to hear from me. I believe you can do it. You have done it before and I know you can do it now. So I got to figure that out. And, you know, we talk about, oh, it's figuring out all the strategies and all that. Uh-uh. The, the important part is figuring out which strategy you need. I love, I love that. You know, it's, you made me think of something when I, when I was a, uh, in elementary school, uh, I know it was a long time ago and there was electricity, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, it. uh, I had a teacher who, uh, took uh, my erasers out of my, uh, out of my pencils. And she said, even if you miss it, that's not my point. She said, you keep changing your answers and you're going from correct to wrong. And she said, you're overthinking. And so she took the erasers out. She said, I don't want you to erase anything. I just want you to, if you think it should be different, then mark through it. And she had this little process she taught me. But the point is, is that it was so important to me because I was, I would, I would sit there and go, yeah, oh, that can't be right. I got it too fast. So I must have to do something different. And, you know, even something as simple as <laughs> taking away the erasers, the type of support that it did for me, because she then had a discussion with me about why, um, what I was doing and where I was correct and where I went wrong or the fact that by not erasing, I actually <laughs> had more correct. So, and, yeah. I, and it doesn't have to be something the teacher does. Uh, I do an activity uh, where students write vision letters, um, and, I, and I write about that all over the place, and there's articles on it, so you can find it if you really want to know about it. But uh, I had a teacher, an Algebra one teacher, who did vision letters in January with her students because they were really struggling. And I said, why don't you figure out where their head is? And so she shared with me this one letter from a student named Shakira. And one of the things um, Shakira said was uh, she talked about how it became the best semester ever because you sort of vision yourself out and it was the best semester or year ever. And she talked about it was the best ever because she finally made a B. She learned how to pay attention in class instead of paying attention to boys. Um, she learned how to accept help, even if she didn't want it, even if it was from her brother or cousin. And she goes on from there. And at the end of the semester, she did earn a B. And I was talking to the teacher about it. And the teacher did a couple of things. There were a couple of things she did to support this because Shakira was struggling and was not doing well in math. So one of the things was, based on the letter, she realized that Shakira um, was paying attention to boys more than she should. Now, you know, we sort of know that in high school, but, you know, at least Shakira knew it too. So she talked to Shakira and she said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move you. She was midway back and could pretty easily get the view of people if she wanted to. So the teacher moved her to the front row. So she would have to physically turn around to look at boys. So she cut down on that behavior. 
Also, when they were working in class, as the teacher was going around, she would say, do you need help? Do you need help? If somebody said no, she kept on going. She had 38 kids, so she just kept going. Well, so now what she knew was that every time she said, do you need help, Shakira was going to say no. So she would stop a little bit extra and say, okay, Shakira, show me where you are. And here was the other one that was really cool because it didn't require anything for the teacher to do. She cut a deal with Shakira. And Shakira, anytime she had homework, she had to get her homework signed off on by either her brother or cousin. So somebody had to spot check her work. Nice. And because of those three changes and Shakira putting more effort into things, she, she upped her grade from an F to a B. And it was really interesting because all of those things are support and scaffolding, but they're not things that you would think of as support and scaffolding, but they are things that helped her learn. And that's what support is. That's so important. It's, it's it, 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 and I, I think sometimes it gets, uh, oh, and not on purpose either, but it kind of gets the short end of the stick type of thing. It gets kind of pushed to the side because we got so much more to talk about and do that I just not thinking about that. But uh, to me, that's that's probably the one of the most important things when it comes to, to working with kids is trying to help them, whatever the subject is, uh, figure out how to overcome the confusion, overcome the, the problem, what, what they might be thinking that is not exactly where this goes or, you know, the things that they may not vocalize, like, like you said, that they may not ever tell to you, tell you, if you say, all right, any questions? And all the kids are looking at each other because they're like, if nobody asks a question, we move on. And that's right. You know, so good stuff. And I don't get embarrassed. If I ask a question, I don't get embarrassed because I look stupid. Yeah, you know, exactly. There's all of that stuff. You know, we think kids are doing things because of us. Kids are doing things because of themselves. Okay. Their head is full of a of hundred thousand thoughts about, how do I look to so-and-so and what if somebody thinks I'm dumb and what about what happened last night with mom? And, you know, I mean, they've got uh, just so many things going on that have nothing to do with us. And we've at least got to figure some of that out or we're never going to get them learning. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm a prime example of that. I used to do whatever I could to not get called to the board. You know, it's like, and it's not by refusing. I just did things that I, I realized the teachers would allow the, the, good kid who turned in his homework to uh, sit and wasn't causing any trouble to sit there and, uh, <laughs> and never get called to board. But the kid who either always knew the answer that you knew, or the kid who was possibly doing something different in the back of the classroom, you're going to call them. And so I can't look like any of them. It's like, uh, just no, 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 don't call me the board. I'm good. And you know, that's, I found out in college that I really wish that my, <laughs> my, my mathematics teachers called me the board a little more. <laughs> Oversaw my game, but hey, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, I know when my stepson was in high school, you know, the thing was he never wanted to answer a question in class and he knew stuff. I mean, it wasn't that he didn't know it. So I sat down with him one day and was just like, okay, Hunter, what's the deal here? And the thing was, he didn't want to answer and look dumb, but he also didn't want to answer and look smart. And I was like, well, so what are you left with? And he said, you just don't answer. And that was really his solution nice. because he didn't want to look bad, whether that's smart or dumb, in front of other students. And and I know, let me let me say this, okay, because if you're a teacher out there, you're probably thinking that, you know, you don't understand my life. I have got a thousand things to do. And how am I possibly how am I possibly supposed to take care of getting to know my students in all the ways you're talking about while I'm still supposed to teach and do everything else I'm supposed to do? I know that, okay? I do. 
I know that it is very difficult these days. It has gotten worse since the pandemic, but it's always been hard. And what I would say to you is if you just keep it in your mind and you can do it a little bit at a time and it doesn't have to be a big deal. I mean, if you're if you're a language arts teacher or if you're an elementary teacher, you can do it in writing and, and it gets it gets it there really easily. But but I will tell you, my high school, my stepson's high school math teacher connected with him just by giving them an assignment where she said it was something with geometry and they had to show what they know and they could do it however they wanted to. They could use some creativity. He got to use uh, videoing his friends skateboarding to show aspects of geometry and just that. And then she knew that after he did it, she learned about him with that, just that connected with them in a totally different way. And so I think that I'm not saying stop and spend an hour every day uh, on this. I am saying it's important because a lot of times if you can unlock a key, then it will make a difference in a lot of different ways. So important. So important. All right. So uh, good stuff. Uh, I, you know, in your book, you even give examples of certificates, which I thought this was cool, by the way. Uh, talk about the environment of the classroom. Why'd you include it? Well, I think this builds on what we've just been talking about is that, honestly, the environment of your classroom matters to students. If they want to walk in versus if they don't want to walk in. And um, I'd been teaching a couple of years and I was asked, uh, I will tell you, I thought I was being asked to do something as an honor. Turns out it was that nobody else wanted to do it. But I ended up teaching in a tract system and I taught developmental students. So we had advanced, regular, developmental, and special needs. Um, and I found out after I accepted it that uh, nobody wanted it. None of the kids wanted to be in that class. They all felt labeled, which they were, okay? They were labeled. And everybody uh, considered that the classes I was teaching were the dumb classes, their words, not mine. And so they didn't want to be in there. Well, I don't like that. I mean, I thought it was an honor to be asked, and I just decided I was going to stick with that. And so I started doing things like, and this is, I'm talking seventh grade, okay? So we're not even talking, you know, I can decorate up and everybody else is decorating. But I started decorating my room. I would put vocabulary words on the ceiling. Um, they didn't like the textbook because it was green. That sounds dumb, but uh, <laughs> the problem was that the advanced and the regular classes had blue textbooks. So if they were in the hall with a green textbook, everybody knew what class they were in. Oh, that's yeah. fine. We, I know, but I, that's fine. I can deal with that. I left them in there, went to the principal, said, you asked me to do this job. I need a newspaper once a week. And he's like, well, that's okay. We get the Charlotte Observer, which was your standard black and white newspaper. Um, and we get that once a week. We'll just add an extra 25 for you. I said, nope, don't want that. I want USA Today. It had just come out brand new. It cost a quarter back then. <laughs> and I, I want it because it's in color. And he's like, well, I said, you asked me to take this, this class. I need your help with this. And so we would read out of USA Today. And all of a sudden, the dumb kids became the cool kids because we're reading about the NBA game last night. Uh, and we're doing something in color instead of having this, you know, really boring black and white newspaper. And I just did all kinds of things like that. You know, I, um, you know, if we did groups, I would do name cards because I was mixing my groups up all the time because of bullying issues. I mean, it was all about sending the message that I wanted kids to know that I cared. And that's what certificates can do. So, you know, you don't want to overuse them, but 
I would write out certificates. If I could find anything little that somebody did right, I would recognize it. I kept a sheet on my desk. Okay, you're going to laugh at this, Steve. I kept a sheet on my desk that was 100 ways to praise your students. Nice. Because I had students where I was struggling to find anything to say that was good. <laughs> understand, understand. <laughs> I kept it on my desk. And so the environment, all of these ways, the environment is helping your students believe they belong. And that's that's what the environment is. And that's important. And um, gosh, I just, if, if you don't think that's important, I don't know what to say. Oh, it's huge. I, I think that uh, it gets forgotten, though, when people talk about developing their content, that that environment is just as important to getting participation and making kids feel safe in participating and things like this because they see what you do and how you do it and, and recognizing that the, you know their comment might matter as opposed to you just kind of ignore them and move on or something. And uh, I, so important. And I, it's it's cool that you included that. Uh, all right, so let's uh, – one of the – the cool things is you have a chapter towards the end that's on uh, using technology to increase rigor in the classroom. So yeah, and you know it's interesting. I debated about whether or not to do that chapter, <laughs> uh, mainly nice. because I debated should I just embed it in. Um, and I talked to to some folks, and they said, you know, I really think if you can just emphasize it. So there is a whole chapter now on on technology, and there are a lot of specific strategies like like mystery Skypes and those kinds of things. But what's really important is that you're not doing technology just to do technology. You're using technology to increase the level of rigor in your classroom. So for example, uh, one of the things I really like using is Flipgrid and there's other programs like it. So if you're using something different, don't, don't feel like you need to change, but I'll hear people say, well, what I do is I have my students post a reflection about what they read on Flipgrid. Great. But you know what? That's not very rigorous. What I want to do is then assign my students to Flipgrids and they have to watch the Flipgrid and they have to respond by either expanding, extending, or asking a question about the content. And then the original student has to respond and then I have to respond a second time. So I really want to build that uh, academic discourse using technology. And the reason I would want to do it with technology as opposed to just always doing it in the classroom is that I have some students who aren't good at just thinking off the top of their head. You know, you ask me a question and I can go for it. But when I was in school, I can tell you I had to think and I had to figure out what do I want my answer to be. And so with Flipgrid, they've got the time to do that. And so, you know, you want to use technology for those kinds of purposes. So it's not just use it. It's use it to increase what you're doing with rigor in the classroom. Yeah, I love that. That's, you know, and I think that's, that's probably a big lesson with it because a lot of times what happens is a well-meaning administrator might say, you know, we need to use technology more. And, uh, you know, I, once again, I'm going to date myself, but, you know, way back when that was like, uh, using the overhead projector and uh, um, using the uh, the movie projector. And <laughs> you can say, I'm using technology, you know. <laughs> but, but sometimes I think people think in that that mode in that it's it's kind of like a one-level surface type uh, focus on it. And so they so some tools that could be used without naming apps and stuff like that right now, that's what I'm struggling not to do right. here, but uh, that could be used to help with create some awesome discussions and some 
uh, in-depth uh, co- uh, focus on uh, some topic um, often get treated at just this kind of surface level where instead it becomes more like just something that uses time. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that for most teachers, um, because I very much am still a teacher, perfectionism is the enemy of success. <laughs> Understand I that. Think we, <laughs> I think that we've got to find the perfect app. And we actually found something that was really good that is, that is fine. And we spend another two hours trying to find something that is more perfect than that. And I think it, it is okay to accept fine. Okay. It really is. Um, and then if you hear about something later, you can always switch later. I mean, you do need to do your research and your homework and find an app that accomplishes your purpose. Uh, you know, I mentioned Flipgrid, but that's not the only one out there. There's plenty of them out there. Uh, so use whatever works for you. And uh, hey, if you can find one that's free, then go for that because I like that too. But I would tell you that it's easy to get down rabbit tracks of looking for something that's cute enough or that's, uh, you know, sophisticated enough or whatever. And, and you end up spending a lot of extra time and you don't find what you need. Uh, I've learned that even for me, uh, I have to put time limits on um, myself when I want to uh, research a topic because I'll, I'll start researching and I'll look up and it's four hours. And nice, I'm going, whoa, nice. whoa, 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 whoa. I was I was going to just find something real quick and use it with this. And and I actually found something in the first 30 minutes. I just kept looking. So I think that, I'm not sure that totally answers your question, but but I think that's an important piece. Oh, that's, that's good stuff. I appreciate it. it. You know, this has been awesome talking with you today. Uh, Barbara, as we're getting ready to close up, if someone wanted to follow up and connect with you and or learn more, where would you send them? Uh, BarbaraBlackburnOnline.com. My website is the go-to for everything. There are over a hundred free resources. There's articles, there's downloads from all of my books that you can access. Um, There's a contact me page that gives you a phone number if you would like to call me. Uh, And I actually answer the phone. That always surprises people. Um, (laughs) And it gives you a contact form so you can email me uh, because I love to do Zooms with folks. Uh, I love to partner with you on what rigorous work looks like. Um, Also, if you're a teacher listening to this, uh, there's lots of books that I have for leaders. And if you're a leader, you definitely want to check out the Just for Leaders page on the website. Excellent. And I'll have that information in the show notes. So it'll be easy to find and uh, just click on it and and go take a look. that will be Awesome. Uh, Barbara, thank you so much for talking with me and sharing your book, Rigor in Your Classroom, A Toolkit for Teachers, Second Edition. Uh, what an incredibly useful book, and it's full of tools ready to put in use right now in the classroom. Uh, you know, your book's an awesome read, and it's an awesome toolkit like you, like you advertise. Uh, wishing the best in all you do. Thank you, Steve. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. 
Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.